He answers the door in like a button-down shirt, and that's it. He's got no pants on. He's got no underwear on. <laughs> he like, he's like, come on in. I'm like, um. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the episode 10 of the Handcuffs and Sawdust podcast, episode 10. And tonight, I'm very excited. We have one of the team members of the podcast joining us, sitting in for Brandon, Nelson Devalier. Nelson, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Nelson's on the phone with us tonight because my hardware or my software on the internet sucks, so... He's joining us via phone. It's our first phone call co-host. So we're breaking new grounds here, Nelson. Awesome. We, we're we going to try new things. We'll blame it on the software if it, if it goes downhill from here. Yeah, it's all the software issues, not me or you. Absolutely not. Never. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for being a part of the team of Handcuffs and Sawdust. When I wanted to do this podcast, I wanted it to be with the involvement of law enforcement woodworkers in our Instagram community. And you are one of the first people to answer the bell and say, I'm in, let me know what I can do to help. And I just wanted to thank you for being a part of the team. No, thank you for the offer. As I listen to the episodes between you and Brandon, I don't think I contribute as much, but I, I try. I'll get better with the whole social media aspect of the podcast, but um, no, I'm loving it. I'm glad to be part of it. And, you know, it's this whole co-host thing. You know, I'll be more than happy to jump in whenever you need, you need me to. Yeah, so no, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Maybe uh, soon we can do a three, you know, we can do the three of us at the same time would be cool. So we'll, uh, yeah, that would getting... be pretty cool. East coast. Yeah, East Coast, West Coast, and Central Coast? I don't know. Oh, no, what was it called? Dark Coast. Dark Coast. <laughs> Dark Coast. Now, I'm near a coast. If I drive, you know, 45 minutes into the city, I can be near Lake Michigan, so I could see water if you, if, if it's a prerequisite. Because you guys, you're or, over there on the East Coast, right? Or we could have a break. The next time I go down to my family in Indiana, yes. I have to drive out to Illinois and getting the coffee in there with you. Yeah, how far? Yeah, <laughs> hopefully I'll be out of this coffin and actually have a room, a whole room as a recording studio. How far away from Chicago is your family? Uh, about 40 minutes. They're in Valparaiso, Indiana. Oh, Valpo. Yeah, they're in Valpo, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not far at all. No, it's not. If you do make it to Valpo and I don't see you, that's going to be an issue. Yeah, no, we'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely let you know I'm here. Way ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to. You always have a room here uh, to stay. You won't have thank to worry you. about appreciate a hotel it. or anything. So you and the family are more than welcome. Uh, thank you. appreciate it. So tell us about your law enforcement background. What do you do and where do you do it? Okay. Um, I have been in law enforcement for 21 years, 19 years, with, which have been federal and military law enforcement. I am a full-time federal game warden in Maryland, and I'm also a reserve chief warrant officer with the Coast Guard. I'm a, my specialty is maritime law enforcement, uh, so I've been doing that a total of 19 years now. 
um, federal federal service. How did you get um, started? When I was 14 years old, I joined the LAPD Explorers. And I, was, uh, I joined a police explorer program, uh, which at the time was sponsored by the Boy Scouts of America, which you're just like a cadet, young kid. I got to go and ride along, learn about criminal procedures, case law, and kind of like ease into basic law enforcement. Uh, we used to help out with blocking off roads for special events. It was a pretty, um, it was neat, you know, as a kid, you know, I did it for four years till I hit my 18th birthday. It turns out that my sponsor, my the LAPD officer that was my sponsor, he was a Coast Guard veteran. And in one of our trips, he took us to the Coast Guard station in Long Beach, California. And I just fell in love with it. Um, Tony and I are still friends to this day. Yeah, that's how I got started. Uh, I owe it all to Tony over in LAPD. That's so, awesome. But yeah, that's how I got started. And then uh, shortly after 9-11, I wanted to serve. And I outweighed all the other branches. And I said, you know what? I'll follow up on my mentor's footsteps. And I joined the Coast Guard. Oh, and then cool. And in the Coast Guard, I did um, maritime law enforcement for pretty much my entire Coast Guard career. It has been in some way, shape, or form law enforcement related or report security related. So obviously you don't get motion sickness. I do. Oh, no. Uh, I'm like, God, why did you bring this up? Yeah, my, <laughs> people that know me well know that I used to get seasick all the time when I was a young petty officer, I used to get seasick all the time. But you know what? Once it came down to do the job, I would get seasick on the way to a boarding. But then as soon as we came alongside these container ships, uh, these big freighters, I, I was on point, locked in there. and So it's different. I, I don't get seasick. It's been a while since I've gotten seasick. So, so I'm good now. I think I was just, I don't know. I have no idea. No, no, but uh, yeah, so I, I used to get seasick not anymore. I haven't had that. In, I haven't been seasick in a very long time. Is there a secret? Because I get see, I get motion sickness, not seasick. Well, I, I would imagine I get seasick, but motion sickness. And when I'm training new guys as a training officer, I have to take loads of Dramamine. And I have to tell them, first of all, I take it when I first start. Uh, the shift, so I drive like for the first hour of the shift until it kicks in, and then when I'm in the passenger seat, I can't read and ride. Yeah, that's a horrible combination. Looking down at a at a clipboard while you're a passenger for someone who gets motion sickness isn't great. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say it actually works or not, but sometimes just looking at something constant on the horizon. Yeah, when I've been on uh, a boat, I've done that. But yeah, usually if you take Dramamine 24 hours before, that's when it, it, it should work. So don't wait till right before you start doing the activity. You have to take it way, way in advance. Oh, because I, you know, I read the box, obviously, and it's like take 30, 60 to, 30 to 60 minutes before you fly or ride or whatever. And I guess no, it makes um, more sense to get it in your system early. 
yeah, so that's what I used to do. But back then, they didn't have any um, non-drowsy, that would mean. Right, yeah. <laughs> when, you're carrying a, when you're carrying a gun, you really don't want something that's drowsy. <laughs> right, so, yeah. yeah. So at work, yeah. if you're on the water, like as a game warden, you're land and sea, right? Yes, we're both, we have a marine marine patrol and we have stagnant patrols on in the wood lines and what have you. Um, yeah, so we're on the Chesapeake Bay, and I haven't had a need for to use any um, medication for seasickness. It's not that choppy. It's not that bad. Wow, good for you. Yeah, so maybe uh, I've changed my ways, I guess. Yeah, maybe I'm all growing, I'm all growing up now. <laughs> You're all growing up now. <laughs> you've acclimated very well. Yeah, a couple of my friends are like, who are you? We don't know who you are anymore. You don't yeah, get sick yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. So what do you? What's your typical day for you like at, at work? Uh, so as the sergeant, I a good portion of it is so administrative from appraisals of subordinates. But typical day to day is if the weather's nice to go out on the boat. Uh, me and me and my guys will go out on the boat to patrols either fishing compliance inspections or sometimes we just drive around, especially during the hunting season, look, make sure everybody's in compliance with local, state, and federal laws for hunting. We respond to any uh, wild animal nuisance calls. So it's a trade barrier. And sometimes we help out our uh, patrol, our agency's patrol, regular patrol. Sometimes we assist them with whatever they need as a force multiplier, but for the most part, it's either we're on land or we're on the water. Okay. Uh, so the the job, this job as a game warden is very, um, very different. I would never thought I would find myself doing the, what I do now. You know, when I first started, I was getting paid to break beaver dams because of, you know, the, the damage that they cause to the ecosystem when they build these dams. I never thought it would be, you know, in the middle of a creek breaking down beaver dams and getting paid, and that's considered law enforcement, you know? Yeah. How did you find this branch of law enforcement? So my agency, we're a big federal agency, and they have different sections. I, I used to be the policy writer for my agency, and the chief of police, told my supervisor that my position was going away and I needed to find a new home. Yikes. And um, they gave me a couple options. One of the options was to be on the midnight shift on patrol for conservation law enforcement, and I jumped on conservation law enforcement in the midnight. <laughs> what's so, the um, age that, requirement for that? Like, what's the maximum? Like, um, if I were, let's say, I don't know, 56 and looking for a new job next year? <laughs> I don't think there is one. There's um, the federal government cannot discriminate. It's age discrimination as long as you're able, fit and able to meet the minimum requirements of the essential functions of your job. Right. And I believe that's a legal legal term. Um, so they can't age discriminate because we don't. It all falls in their different retirement system. So like the special agents, like the DEA and all that stuff. The reason they not discriminate, but there's an age requirement. Right. Is 
is because of their retirement system. Ah, okay. Yeah, so our retirement system is different, so therefore there's no age requirement. So you could work, basically, too, you can work as long as you want to. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm burned out, man. I'm well, you're doing two that- things at once. You know, you got the law enforcement career and your and your Coast Guard career going simultaneously. That's got to be tiring. Yeah, no, it, it is, and especially when you work all week and you think you're going to have a weekend off, and then all of a sudden you have Coast Guard weekend. Right. And then you come back, you have to go back to work for a few more days. Yeah, that um, makes it tough, I can imagine. Yeah, so, um, no, the, the job has changed a lot, and the military has changed a lot. And I think as soon as I hang up the Coast Guard uniform, I think that will help out a little bit with the less stress. Yeah, sure. How old are but you? I'm going to be 41 next month. Oh, my God, you're so young. I know, but that's my bones. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. I joke, I joke because a few years, like a year ago, I sneezed and I threw out my back. Oh, see, I, I don't get, I, I picked up a pillow once and my back went out and I get made fun of all the time at work. So you sneeze and your back went out. That's what happens when you get older. Yeah. No, no, I know, I know I'm young. It's just my priorities are different. Sure. Yeah. You know, when, when I was 21 years old, I wanted to be a gun soldier and high speed and, kick down doors and do X, Y, Z. Now, that's a young man's game, man. You know, like uh, Danny Glover would say, I'm too old for this shit. Exactly right. It's funny because I always mention that I thought I'd be doing my job, you know, maybe till I was 60. And I'm not going to make 60. So I I wish I could, unless I, you know, become a detective or something. Then I think I could stick around. But on the street... No, no way. You, you know what? I, I thought I was going to be able to do 30 years in the Coast Guard. Like I said, when we went live earlier, in, at the 20-year mark, not one day less, not one day more. I'm pulling the plug. There you go. But let me tell you, being in this conservation unit as a game warden, it's a different animal, different type of law enforcement. I have a lot of learning to do. Every day is different. There's no such thing as routine right uh, and it's a new it's kind of like a spark and I have a spark where you know pique my interest and I'm more motivated uh, I want to learn this job I want to learn this aspect of the job and anybody listening that wants to get into law enforcement environmental police game wardens whatever you call it in your region that's the way to go let me tell you there is nothing more satisfying than being able to be out in the woods, get in touch with nature, and be away from what you and Brandon deal with on a daily basis. It's still law enforcement. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, that's not real policing. Well, you know what? If there's that ignorance you think that there's only one way, one method of policing, law enforcement comes in very shifts and forms. Yep. And it's all law enforcement. So... Anybody listening, this is a good gig. I, I love looking at your pictures when you're at work, and I would use air quotes if you could see me. When you're you're on the boat and you're in the woods and, and stuff, it looks – I'm a hiker. I hike with my buddy, and this year we're going back to 
Wyoming, and I would love what you do. You know, it would be great to be out of the concrete jungle, if you will, and actually be in the woods and in nature and doing that kind of stuff. No, it's great. I love it. I, it it's a godsend. I, and I tell that to my lieutenant. It's like the best thing that the chief could do is get rid of my old position because I was an admin. I was an office cat. I was I was in house, and you know, best thing that happened to me. Yeah, very so. cool. All right. All right, yeah, so. that's, that's my law enforcement career in a nutshell. I mean, I just like you, a uh, couple of defensive tactics instructors, certifications, active shooter instructor. I'm a technical combat casualty care or technical emergency casualty care instructor, rope rescue technician. So various different qualifications throughout my career when it comes to that. So the main reason I bring that up is when talking about all these cases that we or current events discussing the podcast, I always look into it as a, as an instructor. What is it that we teach? Right. What is the, what is the case law? Um, the same thing when Brandon's incident in California, the active shooter had came on and like, Hey, what do you do? What is, I mean, the emergency as the casualty, aspect of it as well kicked in so you know everybody brings something to the table and right those are some of my uh, qualifications it's good that yeah. you're well-rounded and you've probably wanted to get into as many things as you can while you're there and that's what i tell the young guys at my department my friends used to joke with me that if i had a business card it would be one that folded all the way down to the floor because of all the specialties that i've done at my department and I didn't just want to be a police officer where you're just handling calls, which is great if you do that because we need those guys as well. But I wanted to get into evidence. I wanted to be on a task force. I was a fire investigator. You know, I wanted to do all these other things to not only to build my resume, but to let me learn every aspect that I can of my field of, you know, the work I do. So it's great that you have also branched out and received all these other certifications so you too can do more while you're at work. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it helps. I mean, it, you can't, you can't just wait around for other people to tell you what to do. Especially as a sergeant, I think it's important to be able to, because everybody will either look up to you or come to you for answers. Right. And, and that's, the, that's the tough part is you can't say, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And at some point, it's like, well, this guy supervises me. He doesn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and granted, there, you and I both know that there are sergeants out there, supervisors out there that are like that. Yes. That you, you cringe when you know they're working with you or they're responding. You're like, I'm better off by myself. Right. Yeah, hopefully so, those hopefully those guys are becoming more and more less, you know, prevalent. Yeah. In our field because we don't need to have that. We need guys that know what they're doing. And I don't know how long you've been a sergeant, but I know that in our department when you first become a sergeant, they don't send you anywhere. It's like, "Hey, congratulations, sergeant." And you're like, "Um, I was a patrolman yesterday." 
and now I'm running a shift. So it takes a while to, especially people that haven't been in a management leadership position before, takes them a while to get used to that aspect of the job. So, so this is what I tell my, I've been a sergeant for five years now. And when the same thing happened to me when I made warrant officer, I was enlisted and from one day to another, I'm all of a sudden this rank and I'm supposed to manage and lead your time to learn how to lead and manage is not the day that you put on the rank. Right. You're supposed to know that before you make the rank. And if you doubt yourself about your skills and abilities, don't put in for that promotion. Right. And I think that's what kills most agencies. People just follow the rank or the money. Am I ready for this job? Am I ready to take over? Put it to this way, the guy that I took over, the former sergeant, the sergeant at the game wardens, I took over, me and my fellow sergeant, between both of us are doing a job that this guy did for three decades. Wow. There's no way we could ever replace or come close to the wealth of knowledge we lost when he retired. Right. So but it's not my time to start learning how to manage and lead the, the minute I took over. So yeah, so that's yeah, good advice. Uh, and somebody, when I made warrant officer in the Coast Guard, I, I was doubting myself because I don't know why. And somebody said, somebody in Coast Guard headquarters saw your resume, saw your packet, and believed in you. You were chosen one out of 23 people in the entire Coast Guard for you to fill in this role, own it. Right. And, and I think if you're put in a position, just own it, even if you, if you have to wing it. Yeah, just don't let everybody know that you're winging it. Yeah, good advice, man. So tell me about your week at work. We're going to do the week recap All right, at work. So, <laughs> Aside from having coffee every morning, uh, it was quite uneventful uh, for the most part. We did a couple marine patrols. Uh, we checked a couple of vessels for fishing compliance. There's a few vessels out there with our commercial crabbers. So that was at work. It was just pretty much on the water. Uh, we did respond to a couple of coyote uh, nuisance calls. I had Coast Guard Grill. I had drills this past weekend and Father's Day. Uneventful, honestly. It was just good. Sounds like a safe week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my guys responded to a boat that capsized, and they, were, they have two people in the water. Oh, and they, they rescued two people in the water. Uh, I was off. Uh, I worked earlier that day, and my folks that were working the swim ship, uh, they uh, they responded to, to the call. They were the first ones on scene. Pull the guys out of the water, and um, so your guys yeah. could be up for heroes of the week had you put them in. I I, I could have, <laughs> yeah. But you um, still can. You can at the end of the uh, segment when we do heroes of the week, you can actually add their names if you wish. Um, not without their permission. I'll um, but I'm oh, taking care yeah. of them at work. I, I'm taking care of them at work. So okay, I already got I already got that covered. Well, that's a good boss you are. 
you have to, you know, it's, uh, you could be the leader that people do things because they have to, or they do things for you because they want to. Right. Um, and I, my philosophy, leadership philosophy is if you take care of your people, the people will take care of you. Yeah. Uh, we're supposed to put our subordinates in the best situation for success, you know, that you can. Yeah, as a boss. So I, I'm big on that, on awarding people or recognizing people for their good work. Yeah. So, but yeah, the, so me, myself, myself personally, I very uneventful. The unit itself, we have that, we have that cap, capsized resume. So that's about it. When, when you guys, you or your guys show up on a capsized vessel, how much swimming experience do you need for your job? I mean, I, I, we're not rescue swimmers, right? It's not like the Coast Guard jumping on a helicopter. So, you know, the whole um, Ashton Kutcher and Kevin Costner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, minimal. I mean, just enough to be able to help others. can't really help others if you're drowning yourself or struggling, I guess. Right. So I don't know if you guys um, have to take a swimming test. No. Okay. But um, in the Coast Guard, we did. Yeah, that that yeah, makes but, sense. Yeah, Coast Guard, we did. Um, okay. But, like, once again, you know, different different specialties, different jobs. You know, as a law enforcement, you know, you do a swim. Your swim test is to make sure that you're able to be water survival skills. Okay. Per se. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. I that was a question I had for you, so I'm glad that was answered. Although I'm a Pisces, I'm not a great swimmer. I, I'm okay. I'm a cancer. I'm a cancer. I, I, I swim like a rock. <laughs> but if you got a vest on, that helps. Yeah, no. So I, I always wear a life jacket. It's just the the Coast Guard still that I like. Every time you're on on a boat, you wear a flotation device and. Yeah, so the 40 pounds of gear that you're wearing, does that offset the life jacket that you have on? Which one's going to win? Are you going to get dragged down, or is that life jacket going to hold you up? Um, yeah, it, it might help help you stay afloat just a little bit, but the first thing to go is that gun belt. Yeah, okay, good. That, that's the first thing to go, man. Personally, I don't I, I don't take any long guns on, on a vessel. Okay. But that would be the second thing to go on. If you were if you were in your ballistic vest, that would be the second thing to go. Yeah, you don't put the life jacket over the ballistic vest, do you? No. Okay. No, the flotation device should always be on top of whatever. Yeah, but I'm saying if you put on your flotation device, do you take off your ballistic vest? I do. Okay. I do uh, because we have a load bearing vest, but I mean, policy wise, am I supposed to or? You know, preference. You know, I could definitely justify. Okay. I'll have it off, but if I'm doing a boarding or coming alongside another boat, I'll I'll don it on real quick. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And most important and last question about your job: How do you keep your cigars dry when you're on the boat? If I would work to smoke on the boat, <laughs> I just I take it out of the, my ammo can humidor, okay, and I put it in my lunchbox. Okay. And I just smoke one for, you know, if I'm out there. Obviously, I don't smoke one in front of the public. Of course not. Within public view. Right. 
but that's that's what I do. I I, I keep my ammo can humidor in in the truck, and then I just load a, a cigar or two on my lunchbox, and I take that with me. All right, cool. We're gonna get into your woodworking later, since you're our woodworking guest, and I look forward to hearing some of those stories. But uh, I was actually quite busy at work since we last recorded our podcast. I think I worked one, two, three, four, five, five or six days, and I just wrote down the highlights of some of the stuff that happened. So let's see. On a week ago, Monday, the 14th, we get a call uh, for the paramedics at one of our motels, and they're asking for law enforcement as well. The caller was, not so much the paramedics. So my buddy Drew and I went over there, and I knock on the door, and it's an elderly black guy and his wife. She's watching some old westerns on TV. He answers the door in like a button-down shirt, and that's it. He's got no pants on. He's got no underwear on. <laughs> he like, he's like, come on in. I'm like, um, I, I kind of, I don't know if you saw the movie Date Night with Steve Carell and no. Tina Fey, but they actually go to see a friend of hers who happens to be Mark Wahlberg, and he answers the door and he has no shirt on, and it really bothers Steve Carell. He's like, why don't you shirt up, and then we'll do whatever. So I'm thinking as soon as this guy answers the door and he's got no pants on, I'm like, oh, man, come on. He turns around. He's, his ass is in my face. He's like, <laughs> he's like, come on in. I'm like, oh, geez, okay. I said, uh, are you okay? You know, what's going on? Why are we here? Uh, you know, I, I'm okay. He's looking for his glasses. They're on his bed. I hand him his glasses. He immediately reaches for a guitar. He's got an acoustic guitar in his room, and he's wearing a veteran's, I think, not a Vietnam hat, maybe the Korean, Korean? War, maybe the Korean War hat, yeah. So he's a, you know, he's a veteran, and he sits down and he starts singing a song. He's playing his guitar. He won't look at myself or my partner. And at one at that point, my boss shows up, and he walks in the room, and sees this mini concert going on. And he goes, "You guys are fine here." And he leaves. I'm like, "God darn it! <laughs> I want to get out of here." So I I said to the woman, as this guy's singing, I look at his wife and I said, uh, "Are you guys okay here?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're fine." You know, he's been drinking. I'm like, "Okay." So now he's singing a song about growing up. And being beaten by cops because he's black when he was younger, which I'm sure happened, right? Because he's, he's got to be probably close to 80. So he was singing that song to us, and I wanted to tell him that's not who we are. And I don't think he stopped singing. I actually I, I looked at my partner. He was fine medically, no visic, visible you know, trauma or anything like that. And I'm I'm not a psychologist, so I can't offer any help there. So I looked at Drew and I'm like, hey, uh, why don't we just back out of here? Like like in the corn, just back out like the gif of 
Homer backing into the corner. Yeah, 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 so I'm like, okay. I wait. I looked at her and I waved goodbye, and she waved goodbye, and we just slowly backed out and closed the door. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Uh, so that was that was an eye opener. That was a good way to start the the night shift, and then later that night, I wish it would have been all that much fun. Our area is having a huge problem with catalytic converter thefts. There's some guys going around just stealing everybody's catalytic converters because the platinum in them are worth money. So they then take them to the recycling place, right, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. We got a call of some guys under a car, and it was on a street that goes one way westbound and then if you follow it around it goes one block west and then you you would have to make a left-hand turn you go south a half a block and then you make another left-hand turn and go east on the neighboring street that's how you get out of the subdivision it's little like row homes townhomes so we get the call and just to the west of that street where it makes the like the u there's a park and we have a pool and there's a big baseball field and stuff. So the call came out, and I flew down there, and I went actually, I went to the street that goes eastbound. I went westbound on the eastbound street with my lights off in case they were going to start running, and my partner went up th- the way he's supposed to go. And sure enough, he he's all blacked out in the squad, and he rolls up, and they see him. They're under the car. They get up. They take off. He starts chasing them. And he gives out the description. He only saw one. So he gives us a description of a male. We don't know what race, but wearing a black hoodie and blue jeans. And he had literally chased him, maybe saw him for maybe one second, maybe two, as he went around the corner. So he gives it out. I fly up. I fly westbound up my street. He flies westbound on his street. And we meet in the middle. And I, they didn't pass me. And there's an alley in between the two streets. And he says, I don't know where it, where they went, if they went down the alley, if they went in the park. So I cut across the park, and we start looking for these guys. So everyone's on scene now, all four of us. <laughs> that's all we have. So my partner recovers a reciprocating saw, master force uh, re- reciprocating saw under the car. And th- these guys had left their car there. And in the car was more catalytic converters. There was a ski mask and some weed and some other shit. So we search the area. We can't find them. We call for a hook. Tow truck comes. It takes about 30 minutes. We search the entire area. We didn't go into each yard because we don't have the manpower, nor do we have a dog. So we start clearing the scene. Tow truck comes. We get the car towed. And I'm driving on the main street. I'm driving northbound on the main street. And there's a cemetery that sits just to the, that butts up against these two, this little subdivision. And I'm driving north. And here at 3.30 in the morning, walking on the sidewalk next to the cemetery are two black guys. One of them's wearing a black hoodie and blue jeans. First of all, we don't have a a big population of African-Americans in our town, so they stand out. And I, I get on the air and I ask my buddy, I'm like, give me the description of that guy again. 
So he gives it to me, just blue jeans. This guy has really like light faded blue jeans, not, okay. the, not the dark denim. So I asked Drew, I'm like, light blue jeans or dark blue jeans? Not just blue jeans. What, you know, are they light or dark? He goes, I, they're light. They were light blue jeans. I go, I think I got your guys here. So they see me. I drive past them. And then at the main intersection that was coming up, there's a 7-Eleven convenience store. So I pull in the lot there and they stop walking. I'm on the east side of the street. They're on the west side of the street. There's a cemetery next to them and a big-ass fence. There's, so they can either jump an eight-foot fence or continue walking or run. So I'm watching them. My buddy Danny pulls up. I go, I think this, is, this has got to be them. What are the odds at 3.30 in the morning that one guy wearing that, those clothes matches the description of the guys that just ran from that area? It's one block away. So... Drew starts heading over by us, and as we're waiting for Drew, these guys cross the street, and they come walking right up to us. And they they go, hey, man, is this 7-Eleven open? Like, yeah, I think so. It's 24 hours. Okay. So they walk past us, and they go in the store. And I'm like, these guys trying to throw us off, pretending that they're just two normal guys. One of them sweating like a son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. So Drew pulls up and he comes around to the front of the store and he goes, yeah, that's got to be him. Now, we didn't, he didn't see a face. So uh -huh. he just, he, you know, we're just going off the back of the description of his, his hoodie and his pants. So they came out and we identified them. They gave us their names, which actually it was their names. And they said they were in the car with their, his girlfriend and she they got put out because they got in a fight with the girlfriend and she's on their way to pick him up so within several minutes she pulls up and i interview her separately i'm like what are you what are you doing oh i came to pick him up we had a fight and i put him out i'm like where did you put him out i don't know i don't even know where i'm at so we ended up taking their pictures and we we cuffed the kid in the hoodie and he was all acting nervous and what the hell. But, you know, we really didn't have any hard evidence. Had Drew seen his face, then maybe we could have booked him. Or yeah. we could have booked him because Drew was 95% sure. But we didn't really have hard evidence, you know. And we're not yeah. going to get latent prints back from the, from the lab on a, a criminal damage case. Yeah. Right. Because at that point, they had only damaged the vehicle by cutting into the catalytic converter. They hadn't even pulled it off yet. So we we picture them and get all the right ID and stuff, and we, we end up cutting them. And then we go back to the station because Drew's got to do paperwork for it. And we just we look them up in the system. Cook County has a fantastic uh, cloud-based system that everyone that's in Cook County in law enforcement, we anytime we arrest somebody, we have to enter them in this one system. So okay. he, he looks them up, and my buddy lives in the city, and in March, there was a carjacking right down the street from his condo or his apartment building in broad daylight at noon. Two black guys walk up to these guys, this couple sitting in their car, waiting to get their car washed, and they carjack him in front of, like, I don't know, 50 people. There had to be... 20 cars in line, people on the street, really, it's Halstead Avenue, it's really busy. This kid was one of them. 
this kid was one of the offenders in that carjacking. And he's got all kinds of gun cases on him. Uh, oh. Yeah, the one that we had handcuffed. So luckily he didn't have a weapon on him. He didn't try and shoot us. But unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to book him. But I'm sure, you know, they're, they're not far behind from getting caught. They're, we found out that right. the county just west of us had run them recently. And if that county, if they get any evidence, they're going to book these guys and they're going to do time. Because in Cook County, they're not going to. Cook County is too crowded. But DuPage County, which is next to us, they got all kinds of time and resources for criminals. <laughs> so if you do a crime in, in DuPage County, you're screwed. So these guys are on the DuPage County radar. So eventually, and they're hardcore gangbangers. They're also affiliated oh, gang members. Yeah. So, so we had that on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, I was. We had a call for a, a lost some guy walking down the street. It's like I don't know midnight, and. It's in a residential area, and he's walking down the street making noise. And I pull up, and it's an older Hispanic guy, doesn't speak a lot of English, and has no ID on him. And I'm trying to ask him where he lives, and he says, my son lives here, here on the street. I'm like, what house? And he says, I, I don't know. And he's really intoxicated. So I'm either going to find out where he lives or I have to call an ambulance. We can't let this guy wander around the street intoxicated where he could get hurt. So we were dealing with him for a few minutes, and then his daughter-in-law pulled up in a car. She said, "That's my father-in-law. He's getting—he's the poor guy's getting dementia, and he's, you know, alcoholic." So he started crying. He's like, "I didn't do anything." I'm like, "No, you didn't do anything. Let's go with your grandson and your daughter in the car and go home." I felt really bad for him, but uh, that was Tuesday, and then of course we've got a Motel Six in our town. So Friday night, which are Fridays and Saturdays are always fun in our de our department. Uh, and whoever gets stuck at the, in the Motel 6 zone, that's it's called the, the East. Like I said before, it's the Beast. So, of course, we get a call at the Motel 6. By security, there's a security guard that calls us because he's got some guy who he thought was causing a scene being loud. So the security guy is a black guy. And this doesn't usually matter, but he's dealing with another black guy. So he says, this guy in this room did this. I'm like, okay, do you want him removed from the property? And he said, yes. So, okay, come with us because you're the agent for the hotel, so you need to tell him that he can't be here. So we go up to the room. It's empty. He happens to be in the room downstairs. So we, we make contact with him, and he's with two druggies who are completely high, and he, I've seen this guy before, but I don't know where he's from. So he answers the door, and I go, hey, man, I know you. And he's like, hey, how you doing, officer? I think he was he was intoxicated. He might have been smoking some weed or something. He goes, what's the problem? And then he sees the black security guard, and he goes, oh, this, and he throws the N-word around. This N-call you, he's, you know, he's been disrespecting me and all this other. So he they start going at it. The two, the security guy and the and this, this other guy. So I tell the security guy, hey, can you just go stand over there? Because you're like making, you're making it worse. You're making it worse, right? <laughs> so he goes and he stands like maybe, I don't know, 15 feet away. I get the guy out of the room. I, hey, man, they want you to leave. And he's like, oh, F that, you know. This guy's been doing this. And, that. and then, of course, the druggies have to come out. They got their phone recording. They're trying to interrupt us. I said, go back in your room. 
before you get yourself arrested for invest, you know, impeding an investigation. So we start talking. This takes like 30 minutes to get this guy out of here because the, the security guard is sticking his tongue out at this guy. <laughs> I'm like, he's mocking him. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, and then it's getting this, this guy's getting irate. And then my buddy's telling him, let's go. And he's saying F you to my partner. But anytime I tried to tell him something, he would listen. So I'm like, come on, man. Let's just go downstairs, get your stuff. I'll walk with you. We'll get you an Uber. We'll get you out of here. So finally, the two druggies are going to drive him somewhere. I don't really care where. Just get him off the property. So as we're leaving, my partner's telling the guy, don't come back. And he's like, F you, he's telling my partner. He goes, you're an asshole. And he looks at me and he goes, that guy's all right. I like him. But you're, you're you're an asshole. And my partner's like, I don't care if you think I'm an asshole. Get the F off the property. So he can't just say, he, he's one of the guys that can't just say, okay, whatever. He likes stirring the pot a little bit. So we finally get the guy out of there. And as we're doing that, we get a call on the air. We share a band with two towns. And one of the towns east of us, they get a call of an escaped mental patient, some woman running around in a gown with nothing else on. So that town's looking for her. My boss said, hey, maybe I should just go over there and show up on the street because he attracts crazy women. <laughs> so he's like, maybe she'll come out. And I'm like, okay, Jim, you need more of that, those headaches. But uh, that was Saturday in a nutshell, just the crazy Motel 6 BS. And then, of course, on Sunday, or on Saturday, that was Friday, uh, we start the shift. There's a major crash by the airport. So there's a major intersection in our town, but per agreement with CPD, they handle all crashes in the intersection and then the street west of the major intersection that runs along the airport, they handle that as well. It's per agreement. It's in our town, but they handle the crashes per agreement. So there's a big crash in the intersection prior to me coming on, but when I get on, day shift is still dealing with it. And the CPD officer who showed up said, yeah, this ain't ours. I want a supervisor out here. So my supervisor, before he starts, he's eating his dinner. And they say, you know, we got to get a supervisor out there. So, of course, I'm in that zone that night. So my boss goes and I go and the day shift sergeant goes over there. And sure enough, it's the Chicago sergeant had showed up and said, I don't know what my guy's talking about. This is clearly our accident. <laughs> so he's apologizing to us for his guy calling us out, but whatever. So we handle that and it closed down traffic for quite a while. That's it. We just had some others. We had a, a battery. Some guy was in a, at a party and he got hit in the face with a bottle. So they got in this fight. Guy gets hit in the face with a bottle. We got to arrest the guy who hit him in the face with the bottle. And then the guy who we arrested his baby mama, they're not married anymore or, or together. She was at the same party. She had invited him. So he goes, he gets in a fight with fam her family. He hits one of them in the face with a bottle. So we arrest him. Well, she leaves there. And on the weekends, we have a DUI detail. So my buddy was working the DUI detail. And he ends up DUI in the chick. <laughs> so she, she was wrecked. And then she leaves to go get cigarettes. And he ends up. He happened to be in the area. He actually showed up on the call for us because the guy who swung the bottle fled the scene on foot. And my partner, who's working the DUI detail, found him. 
So he was on scene. So he had left, and he was on a major intersection in town observing traffic and sees this chick driving drunk. Didn't even know it was her. So they do all the tests. She blew like a 189 or something. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've had a bad day. And he's like, oh, like what, family drama? And she's like, like, yeah, I was in so-and-so. And, you know, we had police cars there and fire trucks and ambulances. And he goes, oh, really? Tell me about it. She didn't even recognize him because he was on the scene. But he was pretending like he wasn't there. So we had two people arrested from that party, one by a DUI and one for an actual battery. And then uh, we ended the week with, we have two viaducts that go under railroad tracks, the street that goes under the railroad tracks. Okay. And when we get downpours, uh, they flood. So we actually had Uh. a really bad storm come through Sunday night that actually was a tornado just south of us, which went like 16 miles and took out, I think, 200 homes or something uh, just to the south of us, maybe by 30, eh, 25 miles south of us. So that's how we just ended our week, was just in the storm, in the rain. And then, oh, and then I got one last call for a DUI driver westbound on our one of our main streets, and I wasn't anywhere close. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll start heading that direction. And uh, as I get to the intersection where she was supposed to be, she's actually stopped in the left-hand turn lane with her hazards on. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I hate doing DUIs. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, shit, I was hoping they'd be gone, actually. So I walk up, (laughs) and it's actually just an old Asian woman. She's just a bad driver, shocker, and she's trying to get home. And I asked her, you know, what are you looking for? So she told me the street name. It's right in front of her. I said, well, there's the street right there, you know. That's where you need to go. She said, oh, thank you. I said, uh, let me see your phone. Would you have a GPS on your phone? And she said, uh, no. And then she hands me her phone. It's some type of Android device. And I, I was able to find the maps on her phone, and I, I punched in her address so it would tell her how to get home. She was only six miles from home. But she doesn't have one of those things in your car that holds your phone. So I said, well, just follow these directions. Where can you put this? And then she just said, I'll just put it on my lap. I'm like, oh, shit. She's going to be looking down. She's going to get whatever. She wasn't drunk. She's only lost. So I sent her on her way. And uh, that was the end of that. So that was it. That was my week. A lot more stuff happened. But we had a few cool calls. And unfortunately, we couldn't book those those, uh, gang members with that uh, criminal damage. Yeah. There's there's no uh, auto task force in the in the region? Uh, I don't know. I know the state police has uh, an auto task force and the Secretary of State Police, they have a task force. But I don't know if any of them are working this particular ring because I, this is quite a ring. This has been uh, a huge problem in all the towns surrounding the city. And it's got to be the same crew, you know? Yeah. So... Hmm. All right. Well, uh, that being said, we should move on to our topics, don't you think? Yeah. Let's see, let's see what's Good in the news way. today. A little bit of news music for a second. All right. I found a couple things I found interesting that I sent you. And I know the first story that I sent you about uh, 
Chicago is facing huge amount of officers that are wanting to retire. So let's see. This article says Chicago Police Department retirement soar amid increasing backlash. What are the odds, Nelson, that police officers would want to retire after being called racist and murderers and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, um, the job in itself has changed from uh, when, you know, 19 years ago when I started. It's different. And I don't, I don't blame anybody that has the time in. Is it worth it to stay in and deal with the day-to-day BS or day-to-day working for a town that, in my personal opinion, ungrateful for your services? Um, the, the writing was on the wall, but that, that's not. Yeah, they. That's, not, that's not shocking at all. Yeah, the article said that nearly 400 officers have retired so far in 21. Many speculating the reason is the anti-police backlash. And like you said, why would any of us want to stay? And I don't work for Chicago, but I, you know, I've been on since 99, and it has changed so much. And Chicago, depart- the job has changed so much. And Chicago has roughly 13,000 sworn officers, nearly 400 retired this year. That's more than the total number of retirements in 2018. They go on to say that many officers say that they are calling it quits due to increased stress in the wake of mass protests, anti-police sentiments, in addition to working their 12-hour shifts and having days off canceled. They just had mandatory 12s with no days off for weeks on end that they've been working because of the violence that's going on in the city. But, of course, they're hiring. So I don't know who's going to be taking these jobs. Well, if you lower the standards and then you you figure you lower the standards to for recruitment purposes, you do a half-ass investigation, background investigation, you don't know who you're going to get. And then down the road, you're shocked that there's corruption and there's no training and there's, you know, it's... Yeah, everything has a trickle effect. Right. I I remember times when, as uh, one of the officers who speaks at our applicant orientation, or I used to, this was the first one I hadn't done. There were times where we'd have four hundred applicants looking for a career in law enforcement. You know, at one point in two thousand eight, with the recession, we had more applicants because people needed a job, and I remember opening up the statement that night when I spoke saying, listen, if you're looking for a job and that's why you're here, you should leave. If you're looking to be a police officer, I'm glad you're here. But it's if you're picking between being a truck driver and a cop, we don't need you because yeah. we want people that want to be police officers, not people who are just need a job. And now it's the complete opposite of that. Like I said, we had 20 applicants for this round of open application at our department, and only eight have made it through their written test and the physical agility test. And they're going to hire one person, which we're down, you know, five guys. We'll be down six in four days when my commander retires, and seven in September when my buddy leaves. 
and they're hiring one, and they get to pick from eight. And th- those out of those eight, how many of those are going to pass a psych and a lie detector and a background check? Maybe, th- right. maybe four. I remember back in 2007, I applied for the NYPD, and uh, the starting salary at the time, the, while you're at cadet, was less than the poverty line at the time. Low 20s, right? Yeah. I remember because I looked too. I was like, who would take this job? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and that's one reason why I went into federal service because the starting salary was a little bit higher than what the NYPD. Long term probably would have been better, you know, but to start off, like, oh, you could work overtime. It's like, work overtime just to make ends meet? No. I was you, shocked, Nelson, at how little at that time NYPD made. Yeah. I mean, I had um, a, a friend of mine, me and him served together in the Coast Guard, and uh, we he was telling me that he, on the job, he booked a guy for whatever misdemeanor. And <laughs> he said that like three years later or four years later or whatever it was, he's in the locker room and he sees this guy and he goes, Adrian, like, who let you in here? What is, oh, the guy no. was putting on his uniform. The guy was putting on his uniform because some misdemeanors were kind of like looked the other way. Like, hey, you know, he's a good applicant. Oh, you know, just, just, just disregard that little incident. No, I said, that's what you get. I mean, you lower the standards and you'll get the... I mean, kudos to the kid if he actually changed his ways, and you know. But if it's just a job to just have a job, or right, you're still a criminal. You just want <laughs> and people do change. So, but yeah, I remember sitting when I went in 1999 for the physical agility test. You had to be in in the location where the test took place by 8 a.m. If you were there at 8:01, the doors locked. You know, you're not getting in. So there are, of course, people that come in 805 and pound on the door. And I'm sitting next to some kid. He's, he was like Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's like, oh, man, I hope they don't test for weed today, man. I was smoking up some. I'm like, get the F out of here, dude. Just leave. What the hell are you doing? So I'm not surprised Chicago is going through this. And it's it actually leads into one of our other stories, what's going on in Portland, right? I know it's topic right. three on, on the rundown sheet, but might as well just put this right into. Yeah, it goes on and on. Yeah, so in Portland, they have now our guys. We have crowd control officers on our department. My actually, my sergeant actually runs one of the. We're on a a, a task force team called uh, NIPIS. We're part of NIPIS, which is the Northern Illinois Police Emergency System, and for small departments, NIPIS is huge part of law enforcement community because they have officers from all these departments that are on the SWAT team and crowd control, all this stuff. So my sergeant runs one of the crowd control teams and they are volunteer positions that the guys from our department, if they want to serve on that team, there's a posting, there's an opening, you know, a bunch of guys put in for it. They don't make any extra money. They do get paid if it turns into overtime, if they're called out or whatever, yes, you do get overtime pay. 
but that's not their main job, and it's a voluntary position. And in Portland, with all these protests going on, the entire Portland Police Department crowd control unit resigned after one of their officers was indicted. The, I don't know. if Did you see the video of the incident and, and where the officer no, was? I, I did not see the video of the incident. All right. Somehow uh, I came across it on accident, and he was – so he's got his – two hands on his baton, right? And, uh, and it's across his chest, let's say, right? So it's, yeah. and then he's pushing people away and he pushed the one person down. And I think the baton hit this one person in the head, but it was a tactic that they're trained to use. He didn't just walk up to someone and start whacking him in the head. Right. So he's been, they indicted that officer. So I'll just read quickly. It's a very short article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want so the people get the idea of what's going on. This is from ABC News five days ago. Members of a specialized P Portland, Oregon police unit that deals with crowd control have resigned from the assignment en masse a day after a fellow officer was indicted on an assault charge stemming from an alleged illegal use of force during a protest last year. This team primarily responsible for providing public safety at crowd events consisted consisted <laughs> no longer does of approximately 50 officers all of whom resigned on Wednesday last Wednesday the bureau announced uh, the the assignment is voluntary and the officers still remain on the force but I, I can't this is really going to hurt them because they have so many protests out there Portland's a it's just a shit show right now, isn't it? Portland, it, Oregon. It is. And, um, I was actually stationed in Portland, Oregon. Uh, that was my first duty station. Oh. And Portland, Portland itself is so beautiful. It, uh, I love the Pacific Northwest and the the food in Oregon in Portland is amazing. And I've been told. Since the last time I was there, that it's changed. That they, that these protesters, the homelessness problem, Portland has a big drug and home, homelessness issues in itself, and they they're just making that city unsafe, and it's sad. And believe it or not, the Portland Police Bureau has their other SOPs online. It's open source. And they actually have a really good, from a policy standpoint, they have a really good um, ICS, incident management program. And part of it is the riot control, who gets notified, who, what steps need to take place. And it, it's sad because they really need that. Uh, that means... They're gonna run amok in oh, in, yeah. in, in the city. You know, as I was reading this article, the first thing that came to my mind was when they allowed Seattle to burn. Yeah, right. Uh, that's the first thing I was like, "This is what's gonna happen. People are just gonna gonna be lawlessness." Or because as regular patrol officers, I don't foresee Portland Police Bureau police officers just being proactive for a town that's not going to prosecute offenders and it's not going to back them up on anything. Yeah, I don't know how 
then you can send out patrolmen to deal with these crowds that I'm not trained in crowd control. I I have a riot helmet that we keep in our squad, which I've never had to use, thank goodness. But, you know, my sergeant, if something happened and our shift had to do something like that, I would feel comfortable because my sergeant runs one of those teams and he's been doing it for so long. But anybody else in our department, we have one guy that's on his team other than my sergeant. He's on day shift. I I wouldn't know what to do. So now you're going to have more protests most likely. What are the odds in Portland? I'm sure it's going to happen. And they have nobody out there to assist these patrolmen. So at some point, as an officer... I, I understand, hey, screw you. You're doing this to us. Now we're doing it back to you. But it actually puts the other police officers in harm's way. Yeah, and one thing that stood out for me in that article, it says that, the, for lack of better terms, the victim, he's a journalist. I hmm. wonder if any Yahoo with a cell phone camera nowadays is considered a journalist. Yeah, right. What what's the qualification? Uh, Do they are they actually a working reporter somewhere? Right. So I mean, I find it hard to believe that legitimate journalists to put themselves in harm's way in front of a crowd control right first line of defense for the sake of a good picture. I mean, right. You know, there's a point between if you're a journalist and you're documenting and then you participate you can't participate and then say oh first amendment you know yeah um, i'm a journalist no it's like no man you you crossed that line a long time ago and two the other thing that stood out to me is are all these protests and are they sanctioned by the town but do they have permits to be here you know are, are the elected the Portland elected officials allowing this to happen and then expecting the officers to to respond. Right. Well, they're supposed so, to be able to peacefully protest, apply for a permanent peacefully protest. Who knows what's going on yeah. in Portland? I don't have any yeah. actual... So I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame them, especially if it's voluntary and you're saying I'm going to get indicted for maybe a couple hours of overtime. Yeah, Who's right. That's a hard pass. Hard pass yeah. for me. So, and that you know, I I foresee the same thing that's happening in Chicago. Officers that are that have the time go ahead and retire. Uh, I don't blame them whatsoever. Shoot, it, if I were working for one of those agencies and they gave me a partial pension, I'll probably take it. Yeah, there's so many <laughs> things that we can do nowadays. Yeah, if you've set yourself up, where I. You know, we love the job, right? That's the career. That's why we do it. But at some point, then, it's just not worth it. It's got, and you watch The Wire? Yeah, I think, I think we, you did, right? Um, does the job love you back? Yeah, I we did watch that, by the way. But yeah, does yeah. the job love you back? Yeah, it's, you know, it's uh, a good portion of active police officers do it because they love the job. They love to serve. They love. It's not about the authority. It's not about wearing the uniform, carrying a gun. It's a calling. Yes. And not everybody's meant for this. And but now it's different. It's, the job has changed. So. Yeah. So feel bad for the people, the actual 
people in Portland, first of all, the officers, hopefully none of them get hurt from the lack of having this team and feel bad for the actual residents of the city because those are people that are going to suffer from this as well. And hopefully things can get worked out and we'll see what happens out there. But since I don't live out there, um, I do care and I don't. I just care about the safety of the officers. You know what I mean? So then uh, the next story I I thought was interesting is an Indianapolis police officer who is suing the NFL. So an Indianapolis police officer is suing the NFL over social media posts about the fatal police shooting of Drejan Reed, officer, I don't know, DeJour? D-E-J-O-U-R-E, DeJour? Officer Mercer, let's just call him Officer Mercer. Officer Mercer shot and killed Reed after a pursuit and an exchange of gunfire in May 2020, according to the report. Now, Officer Mercer claims in a lawsuit filed Monday that the NFL wrongly accused him of police misconduct. Mercer was cleared by a grand jury last year after the shooting. So the lawsuit stems from an NFL campaign that paid tribute to people of color killed by police, including Reed. The suit obtained by Wish TV says, despite a highly publicized investigation and other information that clearly exculpated Mercer of all wrongdoing, all of which was publicly available and was in fact possessed by and known to one of the National Football League's teams, the Indianapolis Colts, the NFL published several online statements accusing Mercer of police misconduct. So I don't know what he's going to get you know, out of this. I hope he wants to do it to clear his name, which is rightfully so, should be cleared. He was cleared in the wrong, there was no wrongdoing. And it's making it so hard for me to follow professional sports anymore. I love the NFL, but I have friends that don't even bother watching it anymore. And I'm getting really close to joining them. Yeah, I stopped watching football, I want to say maybe three years ago. I'm a big Denver Broncos fan. I love football. That's my, if I were to choose a sport to watch, that would be it. But I just stopped watching it. It's just, it got so politicized that right. we deal with the stuff at work. We see the, the news. We see the media. We don't need a recap of what happened in the week in the, you know, in the current events. Just broadcast the, the game. Right. Do the play-by-play and let, let the sport be the sport. That's why I don't um, watch the NBA anymore. I just can't watch the NBA anymore. And and I get it. Some of these athletes are, you know, role models to some youth, and that's all fine and dandy. But the minute, uh, this is my personal opinion, is the minute you step foot in that stadium, that football field, that field, you're an employee. Right. And you should, you know, kind of carry yourself in, in a way I mean, if you want to, I, I get the whole, you know, they're using their their platform or their status to bring awareness to XYZ. But the NFL in itself has picked and choose, oh, we're going to find such and such player because they were 
in tribute to the badass police officers that were killed by the sniper. We're going to, you know, condemn this action, but not this one. We're going to do this, but not that. Just if, take a stance. Either you're all in or you're all out. Yeah, Don't just stay out. And, just pick and choose. Like the other day, I, I was craving wings, and I haven't been to Buffalo Wildlands in, I want to say, maybe a year and a half. Okay. I was craving wings, and I just went out to work one day, and they were playing the, they were showing the 76ers, they're playing somebody else, the 76ers and somebody else. And they break away for one of the quarters, and the commentators, big old letters, Black Lives Matter, it's like, is that even necessary? Right, that's why I can't watch. It's like, do you have to put it, like, I get it, you know, but... I just don't understand. It's like, come on, can I just watch a game to watch a game? Yeah, uh, we don't need a political agenda thrown in our face. Yeah. And it, it, the NFL, Bob Costas, was it's definitely the worst. Look, you're not an expert in any of these things you're talking about. You're just talking for the sake of talking, trying to remain relevant. Yeah, um, I, I hope he gets his name cleared and the NFL can afford I, I, to pay him and, and just say they're sorry and just go away and stop. And that, if anything, based on this article, if anything, I would just say, at least let it set a precedent that whatever you say on, because police officers are getting in trouble for what they post on social media. Right. How about holding these other organizations like the NFL accountable? Correct. So, you know what? I, if I didn't do anything wrong, why should my name be dragged by your organization for no merit right. whatsoever? And he says the officer that his standing in the community is, is declining, obviously, because of this. And it's true. He has to respond to all these calls for service, and now his name is tied to being to having done something wrong when it shouldn't, because the NFL said so. Yeah. All right. And one last thing that I saw. I didn't send it to you because I, I found it late, but <laughs> New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. Hello. Home of Anthony Soprano. Just put up a 700-pound bronze statue of George Floyd sitting on a bench. <laughs> I just, I'm lost for words. I have no it, effing idea. It, I, I give up. It, it, it doesn't surprise me considering it's Newark. You know, if you're going to spend so much money on something like that and not in your poverty and your homelessness and your dirty streets and, shoot, I could go on and on about North New Jersey. I'm not familiar with it other than the Sopranos, but <laughs> so I can't. It, 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 it's aligned with Baltimore. Okay. Aligned with um, Detroit. That makes more sense. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that made me sick. And then, of course, it's not too late to start memes going around. And a buddy of mine sent me a meme of some pregnant black chick standing in front of George. Like, okay. I, I saw that. Okay. I saw it. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, it's, it's what happens. The media, the media glorifies, you know. Criminals. Um, criminals. And, you know, if, if a police officer 
commit a criminal act, I'll be the first one conde- to condemn it. Yes. That's not but, how we, we didn't sign up to be criminals. And we do, when we take the oath, we take an oath that we're going to live ab- above reproach. We're going to set an example for our community. And I, I, I honestly believe that. And I'm not going to drive drunk and I'm not going to beat my wife and I'm not going to do any of that stuff because one of it's not me personally. And I also took an oath not to do that stuff. So whatever. Yeah. Before we go on to the woodworking portion, I want to thank uh, Traveling Crane Woodcraft for your question on Instagram about the uh, protesters. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. Appreciate it. It's now the, the portion of the show where we're going to do our fallen officers. And we've actually had, I think, four. I printed out three, but we actually have four. So, a second here. Let me get this going. All right. So I'm going to bring up the page on my computer for the fourth officer. And I'll start this off here. So, well, first I wanted to say that uh, Jeff at Damn Yankee Woodworks had written in and asked us if we were going to speak about an officer in Seattle. And we are. It, it happened off duty, but we're, she actually is gonna. She's on this, on this list, unfortunately. So, uh, Jeff's brother actually works with the Seattle police officer. So, Seattle police officer Alexandra Brenneman Harris. Her end of watch was 13 June 21. She was struck and killed by a vehicle while checking on the welfare of several drivers who had just been involved in a vehicle crash on I-5 near Spokane Street. Officer Harris had just completed her shift and was en route home when she encountered the crash at about 1.15 a.m. She had exited her vehicle to check on the drivers when she was struck by another passing vehicle. After being struck, One of the drivers from the original crash stole her vehicle and fled the area. The driver who struck her remained at the scene and cooperated with investigating officers. Officer Harris had served with the Seattle Police Department for five years. Someone stole her car. What the hell? All right, officer number two, Puerto Rico police officer, Sergeant Erasmo Garcia Torres, end of watch June 10th, 2021. He was shot and killed while conducting a traffic stop. The driver started to walk away during the stop, and Sergeant Garcia Torres began to follow him when the driver turned around and fired, striking Sergeant Garcia Torres in the head. The shooter was arrested a short time later and charged with murder. Sergeant Garcia Torres served for 30 years. He was 50 years old. Hollow Springs, Georgia Police Department. Officer Joseph Burson. End of watch the 16th of June, 2021. Officer Joe Burson succumbed to injuries sustained when he was dragged by a vehicle during a traffic stop at about 11 p.m. At some point, the driver attempted to flee in the vehicle and dragged Officer Burson alongside of it. 
Officer Burson was able to fatally shoot the subject while being dragged, but suffered severe injuries when he fell to the pavement. Officer Burson had served the department for 18 months. He was 25 years old. And the last one was just added yesterday. Arvada Police Department in Colorado, Police Officer Gordon Beasley. Police Officer Beasley was shot and killed at about 1.30 p.m. after having responded to a suspicious event call near the Arvada Library in the 7500 block of West 57th Avenue. While on the scene, he became engaged in a shootout with an armed subject and was fatally shot. The subject and a bystander, bystander who came to Officer Beasley's assistant were also shot and killed. Officer Beasley had served with the Arvada Police Department for 19 years. He was the school resource officer at Oberon Middle School, but was assigned to patrolling during the summer break. So our hearts and prayers go out to the families and the brothers and sisters and law enforcement of those officers. Oh, man. And now we've got some heroes of the week, Nelson. We have quite a few. I'm going to say the two guys that work for you, even though we can't mention their names, right? Correct. Okay. So we got those two. Tell them I said thank you, by the way. I will. And then we've got some Oakland County Sheriff's deputies. They saved the life of a woman who was pinned under her car after a parole absconder in an SUV ran a stop sign. There's actually video of this. If you go to Police One, anybody interested in seeing the video, policeone.com, and go under Heroes. So this guy's trying to make a traffic stop, and the car he's following runs is trying to get away is some guy some parolee goes through a stop sign t-bones a car flips the car and then the guy gets out of the the bad guy gets out of the car and runs away on foot and these officers actually lifted the car up to get this woman out of her car and save her it's amazing pretty cool video if you get a chance to see it so that's one of them See if they list all the officers, because there was numerous deputies there. She's in critical condition after they did this, but they don't list the deputies by name. So I wanted to. There's one set of heroes, and then we've got. Oh yeah, the Ohio police officer who saved and revived a baby. Did you see that one? I'm gonna click on the link real quick. So, Ohio police officer revive a missing four-year-old found in a pond. The boy had been reported missing about 30 minutes before officers found him floating in the water. Oh, my God. In Painesville, Ohio, Painesville police rescued a missing four-year-old boy from (laughs) Painesville's Kiwanis Recreation Park fishing pond early Saturday. This is something like your guys did. It wasn't a boat, but it was a kid in water. The boy is in stable condition as of Saturday afternoon. The boy had been reported missing at about 7.30 a.m. Saturday from a family member's home just north of the park. 
Police were actively searching the area when they discovered the boy floating in the fishing pond just after 8 a.m. Painesville police officer Daniel Thompson and Sergeant Matthew Tycast saw air bubbles and a silhouette of a small person about 20 feet off the bank of the pond. Officer Chad Belowski got a throw rope for safety as the other officers got into the water. The child was not breathing and was carried to shore where he was placed on the bank. Thompson started CPR while Tycast cleared the child's airways and the child began to breathe. Officers moved the boy so he could cough up water. He had swallowed. God, that's awesome. And the last two, Nelson, I thought were heroes in a way because their father and son, and the son had joined the police department and was in the academy, and the father thought he would also join the police academy. So it's funny. I don't. We don't. We can't do this out here in Illinois. But like the movie Police Academy, which I don't even think this exists. But can anyone just go to a police academy and say, "Hey, I want to join the police academy"? Not here, uh, but out by you. No. In Jersey, there's um, they call it self-sponsored academies which are like a, at the community college level. Okay. Community colleges have a police academy. And if you're not sponsored by an agency, you could pay tuition and attend the academy as long as you pass the background check. Okay. And so you're self-sponsoring yourself. And as once you graduate and you get your um, PTC, which is the equivalent of a post certificate. Yeah, okay you could get uh, recruited by an agency. All right. So that's and, basically what this guy did, right? So his son was working or well, got, got hired by a police department. And then he decided to go to the academy. And now he's now a police officer. I think this is so cool. One of them works for Flower Mound or near Flower Mound, Texas. Hello, Texas. Lake Dallas. I went to Lake Dallas. I, I lived in Denton, Texas as a kid and went to Lake Dallas. There's an actual lake there. Like apparently there's a town named Lake Dallas too. I thought it was just called the I just thought the lake was called Lake Dallas, but Lake Dallas officer Winston Edmondson was on shift and he had heard there was a shooting in the town called Flower Mound, and that's where his son Christian is a police officer. So Christian joined the police academy, got hired by Flower Mound, and then his father decided that he was going to just go into the police academy, like you mentioned, he ended up getting hired by Lake Dallas PD. So him and his son went to the academy at the same time, and there's a really cool picture of their academy class, and the father and son are in the picture. It's pretty neat. So I'm calling them heroes because they're both joining our profession and doing it together, which is very cool. Yeah, especially at that age. Nobody... You yeah, know, to join law enforcement at that age is not, not an easy task. Definitely not an easy task. I'm trying to see if I if they have his age. Oh, he's 43. So he's starting out at 43. God bless him. Very cool. And then we do have a badass of the week, and then we'll get to the woodworking portion. The badass of the week, actually, he's rec- he's back on the job after he was stabbed, he's East Peoria police officer, 
and Jeffrey Bieber is his name, police officer Jeffrey Bieber. And there's a video of him on a stop. He's in a fight with some guy. He he does a traffic stop. Some guy has blood all over his hands. He tucks the guy out of the truck or car, walks him back to his squad, and he's on the offender's right side. And he asked the guy if he had any weapons. And the guy took his left hand out, hit a knife, and he just attacked Officer Bieber and stabbed him multiple times. And there's body cam footage obtained of this. And the officer is now back to work. So I'm calling him. He's the badass of the week because he came back to work. But he should he should be like the badass of the year where he gets attacked and stabbed and ends up coming back to work. So if anybody wants to see that video, it's on HOIABC.com. You can find it. He's Peoria police officer. So he's my badass of the week. Did you see the video? No, I did not. It's quite harrowing. So if you get a chance, check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. All right. That concludes our law enforcement portion. And I thought we'd be quicker this week because we just had... Not so much stuff to go over, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> We're gonna. I want to keep you up a little bit longer. So, no, no, it's fine. It's actually great. It's actually uh, refreshing for me. Cool. Good. So, joining us tonight in our woodworking portion is Nelson of CWO Workshop. <laughs> Nelson, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Glad to be here. <laughs> uh, so. My first question to you is, uh, what got you into woodworking? Well, I started woodworking in middle school. Uh, that was my first shop class. Oh, wow. And I got, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, for Christmas, I made my mom, my aunt, uh, cutting boards. I made some um, little wooden toy cars with the dowels and the wheels at the, at the end. Um, but... So I got into it in middle school, and then in, it wasn't until I hit high school that I would consider the start of my woodworking endeavor. So my high school, uh, John Marshall High School in L.A., California, had an academy called Perkins Academy. And this academy was, it tied your math class, English class, and woodshop. All into one. So if before you could begin cutting a piece of wood, you will need to do a plan of procedures. So that, there's your English portion of it. Then you have to do the dimensions, calculations, you know, the cost. Everything was tied to your project. Okay. Uh, in addition to regular English curriculum. Uh, but it was very focused on woodworking the shop aspect of it. And it, your freshman year is uh, basic woodworking. Sophomore year is advanced woodworking. Junior year was cabinet making. And your senior year was construction. It taught you a lot of skills, basic skills that sets you up after graduation. Unlike, you know, you could do your four years of high school and truly not have any skills yeah, yeah right. to graduate, to graduate high school and this academy did a really good job and 
there were a couple of my classmates that got scholarships and or got picked up by uh, different companies uh, because by the time we graduated, we already had a woodworking portfolio. Like all my class, we did all the bookshelves for the library, updating the, we did oak cabinets, uh, we did um, oak That's cabinets cool. for the tr- for the trophies. Some old, some people ha- had the option to either, if you, if you were, if you couldn't afford purchasing the wood for your project, you would work on a project for the school. Oh, that's cool. You, yeah, or you could buy your lumber and work on your personal project. So we had people make coffee tables, regular tables. I made a bed frame. Had people do a lot of um, back in the day. Those big speakers for the trunk of the car was a big hit. So you had people doing that. I so remember those it, days. Yeah, so they did a really good job. So that was how I began woodworking. Then life got in the way, or life happened. I don't want to say got in the way, but I chose not to go into woodworking. I chose to go to college, then the service, then the police force. It wasn't until three years ago I had a bit of a midlife crisis where I started thinking, if something were to happen to me today at work, what do I fall back on? Yeah. Even though I have a bachelor's degree somewhat close to my master's, every corporate job I would apply for, I, I, I wouldn't get hired. I wouldn't get picked up. I wouldn't get referred. So I was like, I thought to myself, let me, let me look at something that used to make me happy. And I reflected back and it took me back to my high school years. I was happy working with my hands. And I decided to start slowly outfitting the, the garage, my my shop. Yeah, I was going to ask you where your shop is located. Yeah, so I bought, I bought my house over 10 years ago because it has a big garage, a big detached garage. The shop itself... It's inside that garage. So I have a lumber room, lumber storage room, the workshop itself, and then an open garage. Cool. Square footage is bigger than my house. Really? Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's an eyesore, but it's uh, it's amazing. That's <laughs> and, awesome. Yeah. And uh, I slowly started out getting it two years ago is when I started Instagram. And my little brother, that business major out of IU, said, hey, you need to develop your brand. You need to personalize your brand. You need to get the word out. And I think me and him got drunk, and we decided to create an Instagram account. And for two years, the CW workshop has been, has been great. Yeah, what's your favorite part of uh, now doing woodworking? My favorite part is I don't like the plastic feel of finish. So I'm not a big fan of shellac or, I mean, I'll use it based on whatever the customer wants, but I'm a big fan of Danish oils and the natural feel of the wood. 
So the most satisfying thing to me is applying that first code of finish and seeing how the brain pops and actually making this, whatever the project it is, come to life. It's like a magic transformation, isn't it? It, it is. There's something so simplistic about it and so satisfying about it at the same time. It's hard to explain. But just seeing, hey, I built it. Or this was a challenge, and look how it came out. Right. So that's the most rewarding thing, I would say, for me. So that's, or satisfying thing for me. Are you it's, hard on yourself when you make something if it doesn't come out exactly the way that you had planned it? Sometimes. Uh, I've learned to not point out. When I first started doing this, I would point out each imperfection okay. to the customers. Like, oh, you know, that little thing there or that little scratch there. I, I've learned to not do that because they, whether it's an untrained eye or people will love the piece overall instead of just a nitpick. No, that's a great point because I'm just learning that myself since, you know, the business is actually relatively new to me in the last 18 months. Some of the pieces I've made for customers, I, I, you can see those. I can see the little imperfections. But what I've learned is the customer is so happy to get that thing that they had a vision of in front of them. They're looking at the whole piece. They're not looking for imperfections. So that's and if it's blame, like if, if it's a, if it's really outrageous, then I tell them about it and I deduct something off. You know what I mean? If I feel it needs, for example, I made some cigar ashtrays a few months ago, and I was having issues with my small CNC, and it came out to me at least. It seemed like it wasn't perfect. And I was talking to my friend, Michael, right up, Fair Horse Cigars. And I was like, yeah, I might just sell these as the Perfect Imperfection Collection. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I sent him pictures of it. And he goes, dude, no one's going to notice. You could sell them as this. Trust me. Nice. And I did. And I, and I sold them as this, not even, you know, not the Perfect Imperfection Collection. Yeah at a discounted rate. And let me tell you, the feedback I got from those customers that got what I thought were been imperfections, they loved them. Where do you post most of your stuff that you sell? Do you have an Etsy page or a website or is it word of mouth I, or just I, Instagram? So believe it or not, I don't get much sales from Instagram. Maybe less than a handful of myself have been Instagram. I mainly do Instagram for the community. Sure. Facebook and word of mouth through my personal Facebook page is where I get most of my business. Yeah, me too. Uh, I don't spend too much time at home and or in the shop for me to create a website or create an Etsy account because I, I won't be able to keep up. That's Not yet. Next year. Maybe next year or whenever I... Whenever I, I feel the time is right, yeah, I I will know what my capabilities will be 
and then I'll keep it at that. Well, if someone wants to, someone that's listening is interested in your work, they can check out your Instagram page just to see what you make and then maybe DM you. Yeah, send me a message or cwworkshop at gmail.com is my email address or cwworkshop on Facebook, either or. Okay. I, it's funny that you say Facebook. I, I actually started a midnight, uh, well, back then it was the Midnight Handyman Facebook page, and now it's Midnight Maker Facebook page. But I, I actually, my posts from my Instagram account go right to my actual personal private Facebook page. And okay. I had heard something. I listened to Mike Rowe's podcast, and he had mentioned something last week about you don't want to inundate your friend's on your Facebook page with all your side business stuff. And I, and it like hit me because I wasn't getting, when I made the Facebook page, I sent a link to all my Facebook friends, you know, and I only have friends that I know, personal friends that I've met and went to school with or worked with. And I said, Hey, I'm starting this page. Would you please like, and follow whatever. And you know, like 130 people did, which is nice. It's about a quarter of the, my friends that I have on Facebook. But I wasn't getting any traction from people I don't know who just happened to find my Facebook page, the Midnight Maker. Yeah. So most of my customers come from my personal Facebook page, from my friends and family. And I actually was at a, a surprise party for my best friend's wife last week, and his sister was there. And we've known each other since we were kids. And I asked her, hey, does it bother you if I'm just bombarding you guys with you know, my videos and stuff from my woodworking? And she's like, no, I love it. I love seeing what you're making. And, and I've been told that from other friends. Oh, yeah, I, I watch your videos on Facebook. Not many of them are on Instagram. So one side of me doesn't want to bombard them. And I, I thought about switching how my feed goes and going back to the Midnight Maker page. But... I'm not getting the engagement and the orders from the Midnight Maker page like I am from my regular page. So I don't know how that's working yeah. for you. Well, my CW Workshop Instagram is connected directly to the Facebook CW Workshop page. Okay. And I have had, I don't want to say strangers, but not people not in my friends list right. on my personal page uh, do reach out through Facebook because not everybody has Instagram and not everybody has Facebook. Yeah. And I sometimes feel the same way that I'm bombarding my friends, but I only share the stuff from my Facebook, the shop's Facebook page to my personal page. If I truly love the project. Okay. So I only share certain things. Not every, not every single post is gets, gets shared right. on my personal page. Okay. Well, that's a good idea too. <laughs> And, and I told my friends to, you know, feel free to share my stuff. Yes. Feel free to share it. Feel free. And I belong to a few veterans pages and a couple law enforcement pages. Sometimes I share stuff in there. Sometimes I just post stuff to just say, Hey, this is what I just worked on. Like an accomplishment type of posting instead of, Hey, look what I'm selling. Right. It's more, it's more of, Hey, look, I just made this. There's a private cigar page that I follow, and 
there's multiple makers in that group and we all support each other and not everybody's like trying to do up one you know it, it and I've gotten a good business good business from there from posting what I'm making if I'm smoking a cigar in the shop while I'm make, making my humidors and they're like hey how much you sell those for and I'm like hey I'll send you a DM directly this way I'm not bombarding the page with yeah. a sales pitch with a sales pitch right. or you have friends that somebody has like hey the same way no woodworker and I get tagged on the comment section yeah right yeah, and then yeah, I look and then I look at what they want. I was like, no, but this other maker will be a better fit for what you're looking for. Sure. It's not about, at least with me, it's not about the competition. No, it's not. It's, it's about community. community. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the favorite thing that you've made to date? There's several, but I would say the m- most meaningful to me was that life ring shadow box I made for my best friend. That was awesome, by the way. That thing measured 36 inches, three feet diameter, life ring. It weighed a lot, and I really thought his wife was going to kill me because that thing was massive. (laughs) And uh, but that thing just came out. That when I applied that Danish oil on that cherry, yeah, and the walnut, it just popped up, and it was. I put a lot of time and effort into that piece a lot of little details that only he knows what what they meant because we've served together for so long and known each other for so long that I had no problem making it he had asked his crew for me to make his shadow box I would have made this shadow box for free because he's my best friend right but his crew did such an amazing job in the commission of of that and the communication that went into it and the back and forth. It just worked. And on top of that, I had the honor to actually present it and give the the history behind the, what a shadow box is. It's actually his, very cool. At his retirement ceremony. So, so I think that would be it. But I have other ones that I'm kind of proud of. My um, football stadium, snack stadium, that was pretty, one of my favorites too. And everyone can see these works on your page, right? Correct. You just got to scroll through. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But don't remove them. No, no, I I, I don't. I don't remove any of them. All right. What's your uh, future business plans for the company, if you have any? If... If I were to have more time in the shop, my ideal future of CW Workshop, what I want CW Workshop to be known for is custom humidor cabinets. And I'm not talking about like at the, you know, at the stores or, you know, with the glass. Not, not those type of cabinets, like the commercial cabinets. I'm talking about at some private citizen's basement that he transformed his his basement into a humidor or his smoke room and here's this in wall or hanging cabinet or armoire humidor that's what I kind of want to get into 
Okay. But in reality, I have a lot of, I have a lot more learning to do or to perfect my skills, my craftsmanship before I get to where I want to be. But that's my goal. My goal is for me to say, hey, I'm looking into redoing my basement or redoing my study. I would love a really nice humidor cabinet in my house. How big would that be? Anywhere between, honestly, maybe three feet by five feet, you know, maybe six inches, eight, eight inches deep. Okay. I think best way I could describe it, think of a me- hanging medicine cabinet, okay. but just for humidors, for cigars. Uh, how, I'm not familiar. I do have a humidor that I won at my buddy's cigar function last year. I don't I don't smoke cigars, so I have this humidor. I'm gonna re-donate it to give away this next one. But how does a humidor work? So a basic humidor is a box. It's just a box with a wooden box or any box with a Spanish cedar liner inside. So there is two boxes and airtight. You season the Spanish cedar, which uh, maintains the humidity, and you can regulate the humidity for your cigars. So this way your cigars don't get dry. If you don't season your Spanish cedar properly, you can ruin a cigar by putting too much moisture into, into it. Okay. So... It's just, just think of it, a box inside of a box that maintains humidity. So that's why you can do, you can take an ammo, ammo, can. ammo can and turn it into a humidor. Right, because it's airtight and it has a Spanish cedar liner. Oh. Where do you get Spanish cedar? Don't say Spain. <laughs> I actually get it, and I'm, I'm not looking forward to when I run out of Spanish cedar. So my local, I, he's not local. He's like an hour away. So I found this gentleman that is a sole operator, owner-operator of a sawmill in his backyard. A really nice operation he has going on. And he has all types of species of, of lumber, and he carries Spanish cedar. Okay. So... When I went the first time, he gave me a really good deal on Spanish Peter, and I know it myself, and I make my inserts. Well, when I spoke to him, I want to say two months ago, when I got the last pieces of wood from him, he said, this is almost the last bit of it that you're taking, and I doubt I'm going to get any more Spanish Peter. Oh, boy. But I know other mills that sell Spanish cedar as well. Okay. I just personally kind of like going to a big box store. So I don't like that feel. I like feeling like local supporting small business type of thing. All right. So I might be on the hunt for Spanish cedar, but that's usually where I get it, but he's running out. So Okay. Do, Do you think forest to home would have Spanish cedar or no? When I was looking for Spanish cedar, when I first started, 
making the Amokan humidors two years ago, I read online that to caution people to not buy Spanish cedar online. Oh, okay. Because you because you don't know what you're going to get. Okay. You have to actually see it. See it and smell it. Okay. Uh, Spanish cedar has this very fine aroma that if it's not there, it's just dry wood. Okay. I mean, it's, That's interesting. Yeah. So I purposely try not to buy Spanish cedar. Okay. And I definitely wouldn't buy Spanish cedar from like Woodcraft or Rockler because it's the little sheet that you buy is so expensive. That's good to know. You, I would rather go to a local mill and mill it myself. Okay. What's on your bench right now? What are you working so on? So right now I gotta put uh, one more one or two more coats of water lots in that camper countertop. Okay. I don't know if you saw pictures of that. Yeah. Um, I'm working on eight Amocan humidors. Eight. You have orders for eight? I have order for six and one of them is uh, for my giveaway winner. Okay. And the other one's going to be an extra. Because right. I don't, I try not to keep, I don't try to have an inventory of projects. So usually I, I make stuff to order. I don't like my projects to just sit there and collect them. Uh, right. I'm working on some of my giveaway projects, a couple of coin displays with the nine millimeter shell casing. Okay. And I don't catch up on some other on deck chairs. I I have so much. I am so backed up. It's not even funny. Yeah. But the baby has taken, I have to play that work life balance. And that reality is, is my number one priority. And, you're blessed to have that, so. Yeah, so, so I'm not complaining. I just, you know, I have a lot in my plate, and yeah, I'm going to be off for the, for four or five days straight, so I should be able to catch up, no problem. Oh, good. And what's your favorite tool in the shop? You know, I, I saw that in the run sheet, and I kept thinking about it, and there's a lot of tools that are essential to, to get the job done. Yeah. And I have a lot of tools that, I've purchased thinking that I'm going to use them and they're still in the box. Uh, like I have the, some of those. I, I bought a Domino, a Festo Domino XL thinking that I was going to use it for, to make the baby's crib. Okay. And it's still in the box. <laughs> oh no. Was the baby sleeping so, on the floor or did you buy a crib? No, no, no. Uh, we got, we got him a, a crib. We bought the crib. I just wasn't going to have enough time by the time right. the, deliver, the delivery. And, That's on my short list, that Domino. It's like my but, next major purchase. Well, one of my friends, uh, he said, get it. It's a, an investment. I had the money and I bought it. So it's there. The other tool that I bought that I thought I was going to use it and practice was uh, Jonathan Katzmos' Doctel Jig. Yeah. And, yeah, I haven't used it. I haven't used those either. And so as I'm picturing my shop, I want to say the router. Okay. My my router table is a really nice router table, and it has a Jensen router lift. I have a Jensen router lift. I haven't even built the table for it yet. It's sitting in a box. 
uh, let me tell you, it's, it's the game changer. I, I know. I really, and I was on the router last night for like half an hour. I've got this portable craftsman router table and I have to manually take the router out of the table, change the bit, then put it back in and try and adjust the height. It's a pain in the ass. I need to get that Jessam into a router table. I got to build a table for it. So I think I, I want to say I, I enjoy using when I'm doing when I'm doing stuff, but I I don't quite want to say I have a favorite favorite tool that I okay like oh I can't wait to to use right uh, everything is necessary to get the job done. All right, you like all the tools. I do. I do. I do like all the tools. But all right, cool. Well, with that, and we're on the IG part. Who's your some of your favorite IG woodworkers that you follow? So I'm gonna call it out. Everybody on Project Mike uh, on our Project Mike little uh, group chat. Everybody there is pretty, very very helpful. Uh, some some of the other ones that I Tiano Woodworking Christian uh, he is very. If you look at his stories, and he's very informative the way he teaches stuff. And from a business standpoint, he gives a lot of great advice. And his work is just solid, All solid calendar. Right. And he gave me a good piece of advice when the idea of me quitting law enforcement crossed my head and go, we're working full time. And he said, it was a bit of a, not going to slap in the face, but he said, your little knickknacks that you sell are great, but at the end of the day, they won't pay your mortgage. Well, you'd have to branch off and do more woodworking stuff. Right. You could do more of those projects, or you could branch out and be more specialized, whether it's cabinet making, big ticket items. Right. Something that, that's, that, yeah. that will keep the lights on. But so he's he, not thinking he, that you're going to... You when you retire, I don't. You're only forty one. I don't. Will you be able to draw your military pension right away? No, okay. no. So yeah, if you have to, you have to wait till you're fifty, is it for the military? What was that? How old? Fifty before you can start drawing your pension, or what's the? Age I would be years? able to withdraw at fifty three, given some of my deployments and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So you have quite a while though. Then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. But anyways, he, he gives me solid advice, and I always reach out to him. Uh, Rockstar is actually a pretty good one. Yep. Uh, Character Red, Sam Yankee, and all my friends over at Military Makers Podcast. Uh, those guys are are all great. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. I'm in your Project Mike uh, group because I was one of the first people to, uh, when he was looking for someone to donate for that project that he started this for, uh, yeah, I was one of the first people that he that I said I I jump in. I'm not in military. I'm just law enforcement. So I think I'm the only non-military person in the group. <laughs> I, I think there's there's a few more. Is it? Not, I, think, I always felt bad. I you know. I, I think bear. I think bear is not military either. Okay, because I I don't comment a lot on there because I don't have I don't know a lot of the military speak. That when you guys start talking military stuff, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I. I just kind of don't comment, but the, the guys are fantastic. I, you know, there's so many good guys in that whole group. I really enjoy being part of Project Mike, and I hope I get to do more stuff for the organization. But you know, 
Yeah, no, same here. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's another one of those wonderful things that IG, as a part of IG, stuff that's coming out of this group and community to help other people. It's amazing. So who's your woodworker shout-out? You have to pick one shout-out for the week. Yeah, so my shout-out is going to go out to Mike over at Angled Anchor. Uh, Mike is a fellow Coast Guard Chief Warrant Officer, and his work is amazing. Angled uh, Anchor? Angled Anchor. I'm, I'm going to look for him right now. So he specializes in TNC work, shadow boxes, military departing gifts, and Mike has been instrumental in giving, making my shadow boxes stand out. Okay. Uh, and um, cool. I actually this past weekend, one of my guys was temporary duty at. He was at training in Petaluma, California, which is where Mike is. And they had a dinner, like part of their graduation. They had a graduation dinner. Okay. And Mike provided a lot of the glassware, specialized, like personalized glassware, shadow boxes and different stuff. And my friend started talking to him, was like, hey, yeah. He goes, do you know Nelson from CWO World? He goes, yeah. He goes, I made that friend. I, I made that. So small Coast Guard. And uh, so my shout out goes to, to Mike. All right, cool. Uh, he's, he's very helpful and amazing work. If you look at his um, chest, Shadow Box, one of his latest projects, it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, and I also see that he likes peeps. So I'm on board. I like peeps. <laughs> <laughs> my shout out is uh, Matt from Shapeshifter Woodworks today. Matt is one of the best hand tool woodworkers you will ever see. And on top of the stuff that he makes, his photography skills are sick. His shop, he his house was taken away maybe 18 months ago. They had a tornado down in Tennessee. It leveled his house. So he had to move. So he had to redo his whole shop. And in each place, he's got a garage door that lets light in. And some of the his photography is just amazing. I'd like to wake up one Sunday morning and be in that shop if it if it actually looks like that uh, in his photography. So Matt from Shapeshifter Woodworks is my follow this week. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at his page now. I, I I see what you mean with the lighting and the and the shadows of the tools and the it's pretty cool. It's amazing. He's such a great artist with hand tools. And a great guy. He's a very great guy. He's helped me out quite a bit uh, while I was just getting started out. So if anybody out there is looking for a great follow, uh, we just gave you two to do. Two to do. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up, buddy. Yeah, I think so too, man. Thank thank you for um, allowing me to step in big shoes. Yeah, you're part of the team, man. This is what the teammates do, right? We're all one big happy team, and I'm looking forward to you joining us together the three of us at one point. No, definitely. Just let me know when. And if our schedules line up, we'll make it work. All right, buddy. Get some rest. you got to be up early. All right. Thanks. You too, Mike. All right. I'll talk to you later. See you. Bye. That's it, man. I want to thank Nelson for joining us. Stay safe, stay safe in the shop and on the street. Peace. <laughs>